Good morning, everyone. So we are continuing this morning. Um, I started last week a survey of dispensationalism and covenant theology. This is module four, session 13. And we got as far as giving the information. And if you were going to parachute in into the middle of a lecture, this is pretty much the worst one ever. So um, hopefully you'll kind of be able to get caught up. Uh, Let me do a real quick run through of dispensationalism and covenant theology. Covenant theology basically interprets scripture through a theological lens, theological lens of, depending on which version you take, two or three covenants. Covenant of the works, the covenant of uh, redemption, and the covenant of grace. And while there are lots of truths to those that we will we will look at together, um, they, they also hold to the idea that the New Testament now reinterprets the old, um, that promises made to Israel are now promises for the church. And so we would, we would not hold to that. We also talked about dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has two major uh, tenets to it, and there are, there are obviously um, variations to this. But the foundational beliefs, uh, first of all, has to do with hermeneutics, that we read the Bible from the beginning to the end. And we'll talk more about that uh, this morning. We don't start from the end and work backwards. Um, We believe in a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, meaning that you read the Bible like a newspaper. That what it, it means what it says, and it says what it means. And unless the Bible is clearly figurative, you don't make things allegorical, metaphorical, or, or figurative. And the old example we often use is that when the Bible says the trees of the field will clap their hands, I think everybody agrees that that's figurative. Um, but you don't just make something figurative because you don't agree with the, uh, the literal uh, view. That's the first one, hermeneutics. The second major belief under dispensationalism is the literal salvific restoration of a nation called Israel that will someday have a capital. Uh, I, I don't know. How about Jerusalem? I think that works. Um, and not only will Israel be restored during the millennial reign of Christ, but then new Jerusalem becomes the capital of new Israel in the final state and becomes basically the capital of the world in that time. So that, those are the two major tenets of dispensationalism. So what we wanted to do this morning was work our way through kind of a critique of covenant theology. And, and I suppose I may as well um, take this opportunity to answer the question, why on earth wouldn't, would we want to waste our time on this? Doesn't it seem like uh, just a, an exercise in head knowledge? Well, without knowledge, we are deceived. We must have knowledge. We must have theology. Uh, the last number of books of the, of the New Testament have this crescendo of warnings against deception. And the way we avoid deception is to learn the Word of God. Um, we cannot have... Uh, it's interesting to me, by the way, have you noticed that Christian bookstores are going out of business left and right? You remember uh, there used to be a Lifeway Christian store on every corner and fam- what was it? Family, family Christian bookstore, whatever it's called. They're everywhere, like even in malls and things like that. Why are those dying? I think part of the reason is, is that they, they worked harder to sell fluff than they did to sell truth. And so our, our little book cart here, this, this big, sells more truth than most of those stores ever did. 
Um, you could buy all kinds of Christian paraphernalia there. But as far as truth, it began to just be cotton candy and, and it, it, it wore off. When you have a cotton candy Christianity that simply says, uh, Jesus is all I need, and you have little, little sayings, little catchphrases, that faith is shallow. It is, it, it's, it's ultimately uh, very, very susceptible to deception. This is why churches that will not teach truth at as a deep a level as the Word of God will allow us to, ultimately, they can become very, very big. They can become very, very large. Why? Because unbelievers are comfortable there. Or, or super shallow Christians are uncomfortable there. But eventually, you begin to know they, they starve to death. And this is the story of Grace Bible Church. The story of Grace Bible Church is basically this. Somebody walking in the door because a, a, a relative invited them, and you know that going to, to a new church is like the most uncomfortable thing on planet Earth, right? And they walk in, and they're like, why am I here? Well, my sister-in-law invited me. They hear truth for the first time, and they get mad. That's step two. What do they get mad at? Why have I been in church for 30 years and never heard this? What is my pastor doing? And then, uh, ultimately, by God's grace, often they end up here because if you've been eating a Big Mac every day of your life and suddenly you get a sirloin, you kind of don't want to go back, right? We avoid deception through truth. And you gain truth by understanding theology, by understanding the Bible, uh, it, and that's coming at the Bible from various, uh, various angles. And so when we're critiquing covenant theology, this is not just that we want to say we're right and guys on the other side of town are wrong. It has nothing to do with that. And we said, I want to be really clear about this, covenant theology, we have no issues with their soteriology, with the way they view salvation. Um, frankly, covenant theologians have had the highest view of salvation. Uh, there's no such thing as a seeker-sensitive covenant theology church. And we, we commend them for that. Um, frankly, the seeker-sensitive churches would tend to be more dispensational, um, and I, I'm not sure why that is, but our covenant theology brothers have a high view of the gospel. They have a high view of Scripture. They have a high view of God. They have a, a, a high view of Christ, a high view of the Trinity. Um, so we have way more in common with them than we don't. However, the things we don't have in common with them are big, particularly how you interpret Scripture and how you view, view Israel. Now you might say, uh, if I took a poll, I don't think there's any Jews in here. Maybe there are, and that would be, I, I would love that. Um, you might say, well, what, is, what does that have uh, Israel becomes a nation or not? Well, it's one simple issue. God promised Israel that he would save them at the end. If the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, as covenant theologians will say, that since Israel denied and crucified Christ, now God is done with Israel, or worse, the church is the new Israel. How arrogant is that? What does that say about the election of the saints? Can I sin my way out of being the elect? I can't believe that. And I don't think Scripture teaches that. And so God will do with me what He does with Israel. So for me personally, watching the story of Israel unfold in the Old Testament is so important and it's so inspiring. 
and, and so uh, elevating to our God who can see this nation that rejected him for eight centuries before he finally exiled them. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're starting Ezra and Nehemiah tonight. And still restore them. And just to make sure we know that he can do it, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the Israel of today has not saved Israel. It hasn't happened yet, but just to make sure we know he can do it, for the only time in all of human history, a decimated, destroyed nation has been restored twice. That's never happened. That's God saying, uh, wait till the third time happens. The third time will be glorious. The third time is Zechariah 12.10, that they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will repent. So there will be a nation uh, called Israel of repentant people. So it's not just us being picky and being all heady and academic. Truth is important because it's, how our, it's what our faith is built on. It's why we trust God because we know truth. So uh, that brings us to this critique. And, and I don't like to just do a big negative thing, but we do want to critique. And, and you don't do it emotionally. You don't do it with, with hatred or anger. You just let Scripture speak. So... That being said, let's walk through a critique of covenant theology, some of the major problems. First of all, it's very debatable whether the concept of covenant is the theme by which Scripture should be interpreted. I I don't think you can show that. I don't think you can show that covenant is the theme, particularly when you're talking about three covenants that aren't actually named in Scripture. Covenant of redemption, covenant of the grace, covenant of works, uh, those are not named. Uh, We have other covenants that are. Now, covenants are the vehicles, they're the wheels upon which Scripture, the the redemptive story, rolls. Um, The the redemptive story of God rolls forward on the Noahic covenant, on the Abrahamic covenant, on the priestly covenant, that's a lesser known one, um, on the Davidic covenant, um, on the Mosaic covenant, on the new covenant ultimately. Those are the wheels that, that the, the Scripture rolls, but it's not the theme of Scripture. I, I think the very best view is that the theme of Scripture is the kingdom of God. That's the theme, not, not covenants. So if we're going to come up with a theological system through which to view Scripture, which we don't agree with doing, um, then you would at least go to kingdom. We also, have a, we also have a concern about the fact that covenant theology starts with presuppositions and then interprets Scripture based on that framework. That's a, that's a dangerous place to start. Dispensationalism lets Scripture speak and builds a belief system based on observation of the text. And I mentioned last week that that has been the case even in my own life. My own life is not the proof of any theological system. But uh, nobody becomes a covenant theologian by simply reading Scripture cover to cover. Nobody does that. They have to be told to believe this. They have to be given aha moments um, from theologians who list concepts in Latin to make them feel like they're true. Listing a concept in a different language doesn't make it true. It just makes it sound high and lofty. So we would be, want to be careful about that. Another concern, the covenants of covenant theology, their framework for understanding Scripture, they're, they're not clear in Scripture. There's, there's shadows of them, but the covenants that we see clearly in Scripture, it's God saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and here's what it's called. 
And here's the sign of the covenant. And we can point to the places in the Bible where that covenant is. In fact, the Old Testament uses the language cutting a covenant. Why do they use cutting a covenant? Because a covenant was, uh, was established by taking sacrificial animals, cutting them in half, putting them in two rows, and everybody in that covenant walked between them, basically saying, may I become like these animals if I break this covenant? The Abrahamic covenant, God told Abraham to slice these animals in half and put them in a row, and then God put Abraham to sleep. So that Abraham couldn't walk through. Why? Because it was an unconditional covenant. Only God walked through it. And he would keep it. So the covenants in Scripture are pretty clear. The covenant theology, covenant theology covenants are not. Is there a covenant of works, for example, which says that Adam was given a covenant and if he kept it, then he would stay perfect. And if he didn't, then he wouldn't. And, and there, are, there are grains of truth to that, of course. Every major verse, though, used about the covenant of the works has a significant interpretive debate. There, there's no clear, even one passage that tells us of a covenant of the works. The believing in the federal headship of Adam from Romans 5, uh, and, and we believe in the federal headship, that doesn't lead us automatically to a covenant of the works. We just know that there is a first Adam and there is a second Adam. Christ completes where Adam failed. We would also ask, is it accurate to say that God intended for salvation to be by works when Adam was in the Garden of Eden? Is salvation in principle by works? I think we would have a problem with that. The covenant of the works says that the cross of Christ then was a divine plan B because plan A did not work out. That's important because that puts you one step away from open theism. Open theism is the heresy that says that God doesn't completely know how things will turn out, nor does he plan all things. Now, I think every covenant theologian on earth would say, no, that's not anywhere near open theism, but it is. It is, because it is a plan B. We also have a a concern that since the relationship of Adam to mankind is so frequently and strongly mentioned in the New Testament, you would think that if a covenant of works existed, it would be outlined somewhere in the Bible. Let let me give you an example. The covenant of works is one that you have to piece a few verses that all have significant interpretive problems with them together and come up with this idea. Contrast that to the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. He reiterates it to Isaac, reiterates it to Jacob, reiterates it to, uh, to the descendants of Jacob as well. Like everybody, a six-year-old in Israel knew about the Abrahamic covenant. It's very, very clear in scripture. The new covenant, it, just take your New Testament, get it wet, wring it out, new covenant all over the place. Old Testament, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah promises even in Deuteronomy that I will circumcise your hearts. That's new covenant language. So the covenants in scripture are clear. Covenant of the works, it's a shadow at best. Is there a covenant of grace? Now, I know this. We have two hymns in our hymnal that sing of the covenant of grace. So I always just sing the new covenant of grace. (laughs) The covenant of grace is the idea that that all of the covenants of the Bible that are named specifically come under the umbrella of the covenant of grace that supposedly uh, takes in all the major covenants. Now, first of all, Scripture never says that. Second of all, 
um, some of the covenants cannot coexist. The Mosaic covenant cannot coexist with the new covenant. Why? Because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, to finish it. And he fulfilled it at the, at the cross. Mosaic covenant is done. Covenant theology says parts of the Mosaic covenant continue forward in what they call the, 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 uh, the moral law. They divide the law into moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. The, the Old Testament never does that. Uh, there are examples where you could take in Leviticus, for example, one law, one verse, and find civil, ceremonial, and moral elements, and you literally have to divide words. These three words are civil. These four over here are ceremonial, and this one over here is moral. That's putting a grid over Scripture that Scripture doesn't prescribe. I would say that all the law is moral law. Any law, anytime you violate God's law, you violate the moral law, which is the problem with the Mosaic Covenant. It points us to Christ, but it cannot save. So to say that all the covenants are under one big covenant of grace is, is a problem because the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant are oil and water. They're both good, but they cannot coexist. One ends and the next one begins. And is there a covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption basically says uh, that um, <clears throat> there was a covenant between God the Father and God the Son before creation for the redemptive plan. Now, if that sounds familiar, we would say there was what we might call the eternal counsel of God. But a covenant has stipulations. A covenant has conditions. And this is very important. A covenant in the Bible is always from a greater to a lesser. And we would never say that Christ is lesser than his father. We would never say, yes, he subordinated himself, but we would never say he is qualitatively lesser. So we would have a problem with that. I think uh, uh, the theologian O. Palmer Robertson, he says it well. He says, quote, affirming the role of redemption in the eternal counsels of God is not the same as proposing the existence of a pre-creation covenant between father and son. A sense of artificiality flavors the effort to structure in covenantal terms the mysteries of God's eternal counsels. Scripture simply does not say much on the pre-creation shape of the decrees of God. To speak concretely on an inter-Trinitarian covenant with terms and conditions between Father and Son mutually endorsed before the foundation of the world is to extend the bounds of scriptural evidence beyond propriety. And I, I would agree with that. He, he says, yes, there were eternal counsels of God. Jesus even said, I came to do my Father's work. That implies an agreement. But the covenant is way different and it's, it's at a different level, including stipulations for failure. And that, that can't be, obviously. So how would we evaluate the covenants of covenant theology? They're based in theological assumptions. They're not based on an exegesis of Scripture. And, and this is my, uh, my grand experiment I don't think the Lord will ever let me uh, get to do. But I would love to find a brand new believer, somebody who just came to faith in Christ, and they say to me, I've never read one word of the Bible. Well, have you ever heard a sermon? Nope. I just heard the gospel. Somebody told me John 3, 16, and I came to faith in Christ. Okay, so you're saying that the other 40,000 verses or so of the Bible, you've never heard them one time. If that person came to me, I would, I would say, I will pay you $10,000 to read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and take notes on two things. Tell me all the covenants you find and tell me if God restores Israel. 
what are they going to conclude? They're going to list the covenants and they won't include the three I listed from covenant theology and they'll conclude that Israel is going to be restored. And they'll say, well, you know, all through the Bible, Jerusalem's everywhere and about the last thing you get mentioned in the Bible is New Jerusalem. So they're based in theological assumptions. They're based in historical theology. They're based in great men who believe these covenants. And, and we appreciate the great men of our faith. We appreciate the reformers. We appreciate Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and these great men, but they're not authoritative. They're helpful, but they're not authoritative. There's also great disagreement among covenant theologians about the number and the nature of the covenants. There's no consistency, and that's, that's difficult to find. All three covenant views fall apart pretty quickly. Um, the covenant of the works, God's covenant with man to keep his salvation status. Next you have, and the order is important, the covenant of the works came first. Next you have the covenant of grace, God's covenant made in response to and after the fall of man to give grace through Christ. But the covenant of redemption is said to have been made before eternity passed. So it falls apart. If the covenant of grace was given after the fall as a plan B, how is it that the covenant of redemption was made in eternity past? Richard Mayhew, the co-author of our our text for uh, BTI, Biblical Doctrine, he wrote this. How can you build your whole theological superstructure on the foundation of three covenants that are not once mentioned or described in any clear, uncontested passage of Scripture? So I just, I don't want to build a theological system on something that's shadowy and vague and based on what a bunch of people think. Then you have the issue of New Testament priority. And we talked about this, and I'll just quickly uh, tell you again. New Testament priority says that because Israel failed and they crucified their king, um, that, that God's plan now has been altered and transferred to the church. Some will say Israel is the new church. Some will say Israel and the church exist together. Uh, but one thing they will all have in common, generally speaking, is that the New Testament is the way you now interpret the old. And probably the clearest example of this is the land promises to Abraham. The land promises to Abraham are said in, in, uh, in uh, Genesis 17 and Genesis 22 to be forever. The Hebrew word for forever means forever, almost every single time. And it's affirmed so, so many times. Um, I'm going to show you that the major theme of Ezra and Nehemiah tonight is that God has promised land forever. It won't happen during the great return in Ezra and Nehemiah, but it will happen. So the problem here is with New Testament priority, the Old Testament promises are now reinterpreted for the church. Why is this a problem? Well, several problems. First of all, it doesn't give justice to the historical grammatical context of the Old Testament. It is essentially a position that God has changed. That God has changed. In Hosea's day, for example, Genesis would be interpreted one day, but in one way, but in Paul's day, it's now interpreted a different way. 
that would be, to me, if I'm a Jew in Hosea's day, living in the, in the 8th or 9th century B.C., and I'm reading the Word of God and thankful for it, and somebody tells me, well, uh, after Christ came, that all changed. Really? That seems like God changed. And so we would have a problem with that. We would also say that um, the covenant theology interpretation of the Old Testament is inconsistent with their interpretation of the New Testament. When I know somebody is a covenant theologian and they're preaching from the New Testament, I'll listen all day long. When they're preaching from the Old Testament, I lose interest really fast because they don't interpret it according to the authorial intent. It's a, it's a, they would say that the Old Testament is now primarily symbolic in many ways. That's a broad oversimplification. But New Testament, literal. Old Testament now has symbolism that it didn't used to have. That when God promised Abraham land, in Genesis 12, about 2000 BC, he meant land. But now it doesn't mean land anymore. Now it means the church. Now it means a a spiritual land, so to speak. Another problem. New Testament priority taken to the logical extreme is ludicrous. If the only way to properly interpret, and I don't mean ludicrous to be be. Uh, offensive or to be uh, condescending. Uh, Ludicrous is a word that means it doesn't hold water. It's not logical. Um, If the only way to properly interpret the Old Testament is through the lens of the New Testament, then logically, you have to come to some conclusions. It means that the New Testament writers, first of all, who utilize the Old Testament in their writing, secondly, wrote prior to the completion of the rest of the New Testament, logically didn't have the necessary tools to rightly interpret the Old Testament because they didn't have a finished New Testament. In other words, now the the New Testament uses of the Old Testament have to be placed in chronological order and interpreted from the last one to the first one, making the New Testament entirely uh, inaccessible, ununderstandable. There are 365 quotes and allusions to the Old Testament in the New Testament. 365. If New Testament priority is true, you must place them in order and start with the last one and work your way backwards. If that sounds impossible, it is. Or let me put it to you this way. James could not possibly have rightly interpreted the Old Testament because he didn't have Galatians. James was written in 44 to 49 AD. Galatians written 49 or 50 Paul, when he wrote Galatians, could not possibly have interpreted the Old Testament correctly because he didn't have Matthew, Mark, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Luke. Paul, when he wrote Ephesians, couldn't possibly have correctly interpreted the Old Testament even though he quotes the Old Testament extensively in Ephesians because he hadn't written Philippians. He hadn't written Philemon. There was no Colossians. Luke hadn't written Acts yet. There was no Hebrews. Jude hadn't been written. John hadn't been written. First, second, and third John hadn't been written. And Revelation hadn't been written. There's only one biblical author, according to this system, that could actually interpret the Old Testament correctly, and that's John. And what did John say? Israel's going to be restored. I don't know what else to tell you. He's the last author of the New Testament, and that's what he believed. So it it just falls apart, and it's, it's based in, oh, no, Our belief system doesn't hold water. We need to come up with a theological system by which it will. I am very dubious and suspicious of creating a theological system to agree with me. I I don't want to do that. 
How about the church? How many times does the Bible represent the church as the new Israel or presents Israel in the Old Testament as the church? Zero. There's a clear distinction. Now, yes, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses ekklesia in Greek to speak of the gathering of Israel. You cannot build an entire doctrine on a lexical study, on a dictionary word. Um, Lexical studies are considered by, by good hermeneuticians to be the lowest form of argument. They're important, but they're the lowest form. Um, you, you could use the same argument to say that, and we've said this before, uh, 41 times in the Bible, God says he hates dogs. Well, God must hate dogs because that word is there so many times. Obviously, there's symbolism there and, and dog is used to speak of the spiritually inept in many cases. But you can't build a whole doctrine on the fact that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses a Greek word that, that means gathering and say, well, that must be the church. That's too weak. Uh, lexical uses of words change over time anyway. Uh, there's all kinds of words we don't even use anymore, right? Because the, the, the meaning has changed. Series of questions that I think you could ask about the church. Will the final state, the final part of God's redemptive plan, will it have separate nations? Well, yes. Revelation 22, 3, the very end of the Bible, says very clearly uh, that it will. By the way, how do covenant theologians get around this? Many of them, I would say most of them, will interpret uh, Revelation with what is, uh, what is called a semi-preterist view, meaning that most of it has come true already that Antichrist was actually Nero, and there's some complex ways they try to interpret it, that basically, that it's already happened. Well, if it's already happened, why did God put it at the end of the Bible? And, and that, it doesn't hold water anyway. But, so we'll, we'll go with the, um, if a, just a normal person is reading the book of Revelation, they would say, uh, none of this has happened yet. Will the final state have separate nations? Yes. Revelation 22.3, follow my logic here. Will there be a Jerusalem? Yes. It's called New Jerusalem. There's no, there's no lack of clarity there. If there is a New Jerusalem, what nation would it most likely be in? And again, we take a wild guess that Israel would seem to be logical. Will there be saved Jews? Yes. Will some or all of them live in the vicinity of New Jerusalem and or in it? At least some and maybe all. What would you call a nation with a city named Jerusalem with Jews living in it? There's no other option. It's not Afghanistan. It is Israel. The New Testament affirms the expectation of a salvation and restoration of national Israel. It is absolutely clear. Matthew 19:28, Matthew 23:37 through 39. Acts 1.6, what's the last question the disciples asked Jesus before he ascended into heaven? Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He didn't say the kingdom's never going to be restored since they crucified me. He said, I'm not going to tell you when. It's not for you to know. In the meantime, what do you do? Go therefore and be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In the meantime. 
Can you imagine if Jesus had said, yes, in 1,211 years, the kingdom will be restored. We would be, we, we would be done. We would just be counting that time down. But he never denied it. It's the third point here. As we showed earlier, we don't agree with the claim of covenant theology that the church existed in the Old Testament with Adam or Abraham. People of faith existed, most clearly, but not the unique entity of the church. What, what is unique as the church? Uh, what's unique about the church is a whole people all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You cannot say that existed before Pentecost. Uh, I just look at the behavior of the, the, uh, the apostles. Were they saved? Yes. They were in an in-between time. They were what we would call Old Testament saints. They were men of faith. Were they regenerate in the sense of having faith? To some degree, yes. There is an Old Testament regeneration. There's an internal reality of faith. Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God. But were they indwelt by the Holy Spirit? No. And where do you see the difference most poignantly? In Peter. Peter becomes the great preacher of Acts 2 through about 10 and 11. Before that, he was the great foot-in-the-mouth guy. The Spirit of God in him made a huge difference. How did Jesus view the church? Matthew 16, 18, he viewed it as future. Not once did Jesus ever say the church in the Old Testament or the church in the Garden of Eden or the church of Israel. Never said that. Acts 2, verse 20, the church is built and then also referenced in Ephesians 1. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The, the apostles, the prophets, they were commissioned by Christ and they did their ministry after the ascension of Christ. That's when the church was born. Why, why is Acts 2 so huge? Why, is there, why are there tongues of fire over the apostles? Why are they speaking 15 different listed languages? Why are 3,000 people come to faith in Christ? Because when a royal baby is born, everybody knows about it. And the church was a royal baby born on the day of Pentecost for the first time. Have you ever seen tongues of fire over people? I never have. Never saw it in the Old Testament either. Little appearances of fire like Elijah going to heaven in a fiery chariot and all that. But that was a big deal. This was God saying, this is new. What did he call the the coming... uh, covenant the new covenant and we would also say that the the day of the the beginning of the church is linked with spirit baptism on the day of pentecost and and to be very clear for those of you maybe still confused about this the baptism of the holy spirit is not an event or it's not an experience that happens to you it's not something subsequent to salvation where you suddenly speak in tongues or that you're now a nicer person to be around or that you suddenly understand the bible Spirit baptism is simply being immersed in something. You become part of something. The baptism of the Spirit is what places you into the body of Christ. There's no such thing as a believer who is not baptized in the Spirit, not immersed by the Spirit into the church. Very, very different than the Old Testament. We would also say that we don't agree with the claim of covenant theology that the Mosaic Law is partially operative today with the distinction I already mentioned of the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law. Law of Moses is never divided this way, and we would say that to break any part of the law is immoral. James 2.10 says it, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And, and finally, just to evaluate here, and I think this is so important because 
I, I think you've probably picked this up from me. One, every, every shepherd has kind of their pet passions. And one of my passions is that you go home and read your Bible and trust what you read. And that you be able to read your Bible. I, I believe in 1 Corinthians 2 that says that spiritual men can interpret spiritual things. That you can read your Bible and understand it. And so to have a theological system that gives you an interpretive method that says you can't properly interpret scripture without professors of theology to tell you how to do it. I have a problem with that. The average believer ought to be able to go home and open his Bible, not at the level of somebody who's been trained theologically for many years, but ought to be able to open his Bible and generally speaking, trust that when God says he's going to restore Israel, he means I guess he means he's going to restore Israel. And when God says that he will keep your salvation safe to the end and is able to keep you from stumbling, that that means your salvation is secure. I am passionate that you trust your Bibles. But I have a problem with, I, I think that covenant theology creates a, a difficulty understanding scripture unless you have a genius explaining it to you. And I, I think that's why I think the greatest pastors in the world are of medium, maybe slightly above in, uh, average intelligence. Once you get the really, really smart guys and they, you combine that with arrogance, they begin to believe that you can't understand Scripture without their help. I don't believe you can understand Scripture without my help. I just believe you're gracious enough to come let me help you. And there's a big difference between those two. I want to go down these columns and I know that the writing's a little bit small. I just want to do a comparison of the hermeneutics of covenant theology and dispensationalism. Covenant theology, New Testament priority over the Old Testament. The New Testament is the lens for interpreting the Old Testament. The New Testament transcends. It is more important than it reinterprets the Old Testament. That's very important. This word right here is very important. Oh, it's not up there. Well, it, it should say it transcends. New Testament transcends the Old Testament. It's more important. Dispensationalism says that the starting point for understanding any Bible passage is the authorial intent of the author of that passage and that no, no passage has priority over any other passage. Um, John MacArthur was one of the first preachers to say he can't stand a red leather Bible. Why is that? Now, I like them because it helps me find the words of Jesus. But according to Romans 8, um, where is the word of Christ? Cover to cover. It is all the word of Christ. And so the no passage has priority over any other passage. It's all here together. Covenant theology, you have non-literal fulfillments of Old Testament texts. Um, <clears throat> the, the prophecies of Jesus' first coming were literally fulfilled, but his second coming not literally fulfilled. How is that possible? Or how is it the prophecies of Israel being taken into captivity are literally fulfilled in history, but prophecies of Israel's ultimate restoration are now metaphorical for the church? You see what I'm saying? If prophecy is fulfilled literally some of the time, logically it must be fulfilled literally all of the time. Why do we have so much fulfilled prophecy within the pages of the Old Testament? It's to tell us that the unfulfilled prophecy will happen also. It's to give us a, a clear point of confidence. In dispensationalism, progressive revelation, including all the New Testament, builds upon the literal, 
the contextual meaning of earlier passages, there are no non-literal fulfillments of Old Testament texts. And there has been some really good work um, on this. Uh, Of the 365 or so Old Testament quotes and allusions in the New Testament, um, in, in a book that just came out by Michael Vlock last year, um, called interpreting the interpreting the old with the new, I can't remember the title of it. It has the words Old Testament and New Testament in it anyway. He goes through all 365, and basically he shows that there are five of them that are questionable as to whether they're literal or not. But there are answers that exist to those questions. In other words, they're they're batting zero when it comes to saying that the New Testament. Uh, treats the Old Testament in some sort of symbolic or figurative way. It never does. Not one time. Then you have over on, under covenant theology, you have the typological interpretation that the Old Testament is viewed as types and shadows of greater New Testament realities. And that is true to a certain degree, but the New Testament tends to affirm that and, and say, for example, that Moses is that Christ is like Moses, but uh, the book of Hebrews says Christ is greater than Moses, but it says it directly. The dispensational hermeneutic says that historical grammatical interpretation is applied to all passages of Scripture. There isn't a single other book that you've ever read in history that where you start at the end in order to interpret the beginning. You start at the beginning. How does the Bible start in the beginning? I think that's a pretty good indication where you ought to start. One of the greatest things I enjoy about preaching in the Old Testament is that there is always a pathway forward to the cross. There is always a pathway forward to Christ. There's always a pathway forward all the way to Revelation. And yes, the the opposite exists as well. But neither pathway reinterprets the other. As we go through Ezra and Nehemiah in the coming number of months, you're going to find, and I'm going to, to the best of my ability, every single Sunday night, point our path toward the cross. But the cross doesn't reinterpret Ezra and Nehemiah. It doesn't go backwards that way. We apply the historical grammatical interpretation to all passages of Scripture. Covenant theology, Old Testament promises are ultimately about Jesus, not national Israel. And there's, there's disagreement on that. Some say it's about the church. Some say it's about Jesus. But um, probably the highest, loftiest view they would say is that Jesus fulfills all the promises made to Israel. He does fulfill some of the promises made to Israel, like that Abraham would be given a seed singular. But in the same context, he's also given seed plural, numbering more than the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, that seed singular will rule over all those. And so if Jesus is the fulfillment of all things national Israel, then who's he reigning over? Who's he the king over? Well, they would say the church. Jesus is not king over the church. He is head of the church. He is king over Israel. Now, we call him our king of kings and lord of lords, but if we want to be technical, the king must be descended from David and rule the Jews. Now, in the millennial kingdom, he'll also be called the king of all the kings. So we're splitting hairs a little bit. But if he, if he is fulfilling all the promises made to Israel, then who is he reigning over as a Jewish king? Dispensationalism would say that types and their implications should be understood on a case-by-case basis. That, that perhaps 
uh, Jesus is a type uh, that fulfills some promises, but that's not always the case. And then one more, uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel means there's no reason to expect a literal fulfillment with promises to national Israel. We would say Jesus is linked with Israel as Israel's corporate head who restores national Israel. Uh, I read Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 is the story of the second coming of Christ and where does he land when he returns? Does he land in, in, in uh, Alabama? He lands on the Mount of Olives, the same place from which he ascended into heaven. Why, why land on this little lump of ground right next to a relatively nondescript city? Because he's coming back to save Israel. He doesn't come to Paris, doesn't come to New York, doesn't come to L.A., except maybe to drop a bomb on it. Who knows? He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's coming back to the literal spot from which he left. That's called sticking to a plan, I would say. So when you read your Bible, I think, that, I think our best application, when you read your Bible, believe it. Believe it. And when, when God says, um, for example... In, uh, oh, let's just pick a minor prophet at, at random here. How about uh, Zephaniah? And when God says in Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. What's the context? Two verses earlier, the Lord has taken away your judgments. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. What does that mean? It means there's a king who is in Israel when all the judgments of Israel have been taken away. Are the judgments of Israel taken away yet? Not yet. Not not yet. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The word exult means he will dance a circle dance around you. Believe it. Don't say, well, what that really means is that Christ loves the church. Christ does love the church. You don't need that verse to tell you that. That verse tells you that Christ is going to return to Israel and dance in exaltation around the ones he has saved. So just believe it. Uh, Believe, um, oh, let's see. There's so many choices. Believe Amos 9. This is the key to the whole Old Testament. Amos 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. In other words, the Davidic kingship is coming back and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. So is this symbolic of the church? You tell me. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. How dare us not take that literally? What does that mean? It means that In the millennial kingdom, God will so bless Israel that a farmer, which will be probably most people, drops a seed in the ground and just sits there in the lawn chair and watches it grow and then picks the fruit and then does it again. That's glorious. 
That is truly glorious. Uh, if you think about Isaiah, sorry, I could do this all day. We'll just do one more. <clears throat> if you think about Isaiah uh, 35, <clears throat> the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That's a, that's a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. What's the context? The context is the return of Israel. The waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You cannot just say, well, that's the word of God going forth. The book of Ezekiel and Zechariah 14 says that when Christ returns, he's going to break open the ground in Jerusalem and two rivers are coming out, one going to the Mediterranean and one going to the desert. What happens when you water a desert like crazy? According to Isaiah 35, wild roses will grow everywhere. That's a coming kingdom. Why would you read your Bible and say, well, I need to reinterpret that. Don't. Don't do it. Just let the truth stand and look forward to it. The coming of Christ will include a spiritual, physical glory that was the original intent of the Garden of Eden. That's a kingdom worth looking forward to. We don't spiritualize it. We just read it and believe it. So my hope for you is that when you read your Bible, if it seems like God is saying the king shall return to Israel. How do you interpret that? Uh, the king is coming and he's returning to a place called Israel. It's very simple. I have three minutes for questions about the giant topic of covenant theology and dispensationalism. Who would like to ask a question? I've already told you everything I know. Joe and then, and then Nate. All right, so the question is, why were the reformers and Puritans generally covenantal um, co compared to history? Well, I, the biggest reason for the reformers is that they were all Catholics to start off with. They, they dragged a lot of theology with them, and I understand that. Um, a lot of you are former charismatics, and I still see your hands going up when we sing. You know, It's like you're dragging your old theology in. That's all right. Uh, we'll, we'll help you over time. Um, the, the Puritans, what they saw was government oppressing the church at a huge level. 2,500 Puritans in the Great Ejection of 1662 getting kicked out of their churches for preaching the gospel and refusing to go along with a government-mandated rules for the church. What did, they, what did they see that as? They saw that as basically the end of all time. And so they would tend to interpret scripture based on reading the newspaper and seeing what's happening in history. One of the great things about Puritans is that they all to a man, believed Christ could return any moment. That's why they weren't materialistic. They, they didn't care about stuff because they, they knew they were on this earth for a short period of time. Plus, they, you know, in that day and age, you got sick so often and people didn't live very long, so they, they tended to be very, um, very heavenly-minded. But, but I'll say this. We've had, since then, 300 years of studying the Bible at a higher level. We have even tools today to be able to understand um, scripture at a higher level because if I want to find 50 cross-references about the truth, I don't have to read Genesis to Revelation. I can do a computer search. Uh, I can read scholars who have written. But I, I would say, uh, one, being 
the reformers coming out of Catholicism, uh, that's why almost all of them were still paedo-baptists, that they still baptized infants because that's left over. Um, and they, they equated that just like Catholicism does to circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant. They put them together. The Bible never makes that comparison. That's just something that they made up. So there's coming out of the Catholicism. But then the history, it, it's only been in the last couple of hundred years that the idea of a church that's not connected to the state has come about. Almost always, the church is connected to the state meaningfully uh, in a way that's difficult. It, during the Reformation, you had entire towns that the government decreed because the mayor got saved. The government decreed uh, that every church in town is now Protestant. All the Catholics packed their bags and they had to run out of town because the Protestants were going to kill them. Then the mayor dies. And the Catholic comes to the office and he says, all the churches in town are now Catholic and all the Protestants pack their bags and run out of town. And all the Catholics come back and doing this. So the government and the church has been so united for so long until just recent history that, um, that theology was sometimes determined by who had the most power. So I don't know if that helps a little. You're right, that is an entire lecture uh, for another time. Um, but we just want to let scripture speak for itself. And as I mentioned last time, uh, just saying that, well, my system is older than yours is not a proof, and it's not also. Nate, you had a question. So part of the uh, covenant theology is that the, the kingdom is now, right? That the Lord is reigning over the world now, and there's parts of the kingdom are already established. How do we reconcile that with how much sin, how much chaos is in the world if, if Christ is reigning now as we would say the millennial kingdom, the, the, the future state of his reign? Yeah, I, so the question is... Uh, I'll phrase it as a question. Does covenant theology believe that the kingdom is now? Some in covenant theology do because now you have to mix in millennial views. There are pre-millennial covenantalists who think that the kingdom has not yet come. I, I would, if I'm just guessing, the majority of covenant theologians are amillennial um, and would believe that there, there is no coming reign of Christ as an in-between time. Uh, that when Christ returns, all things happen. Uh, all at once. The, the resurrection, uh, there's no rapture. If they believe in the rapture, uh, I call it boing theology, that everybody goes up, boing, and comes right back down. And that everything happens all at once at the very end. Um, if they believe that the kingdom has come now, and, and I would say that that can be true for many because they, uh, they reinterpret Revelation 6, the binding of Satan during the millennial kingdom, they would say that Satan is bound now. And they're... Uh, they're proof of that is that the gospel is going forth to the nations well i i don't know i just i read the news and not that we interpret bible by the news but uh if satan is bound now i'd hate to see what the world is like if he's not bound um so how do they reconcile sin in the world i'm not really sure actually because it's completely illogical to me um based on believing that the kingdom is now and that everything is going to just consummate when Christ returns and he's going to make all things right. You do see covenant theologians being a little bit more concerned about um, social justice, not, not, the, not the weird, unbelieving kind, but real justice. Um, you do see uh, being more concerned about uh, family life uh, and making certain your children are saved, uh, even to the point of saying of, of the belief system that says if two parents are saved, then your children automatically will be saved. I don't see that in scripture. Um, so there are some good outcomes to that, 
but the negative outcome is that it's not following what Scripture says. And I would point out one, one little proof. The basic question is, the age we're in now and the final state with where everything's perfect and everything's back on earth, there's new earth, new heavens and all that, everybody agrees those two things, one is happening now and one will happen. Covenant theologians, dispensationalists all agree on that. Where we differ is, is there something in between those two? Isaiah makes it pretty clear there is. Isaiah 65 and 66 describes a kingdom where Christ is on earth and yet people are living for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Isaiah describes a changed earth yet where there is still sin here. Why is there sin? Because the, uh, the descendants of the survivors of the great tribulation are still sinners living alongside the glorified saints who return with Christ, Revelation 19. And then at the end of that time, you have Christ on earth uh, being attacked by Satan, deceiving the nations to come against Jerusalem. One big, very, very quick battle, boom, they're dead. And then comes the end. Um, so I think the burden of proof is on those who don't believe in that inter- intermediate kingdom, that millennial kingdom. The burden of proof is on them to say that it doesn't exist. Because I see it everywhere in Scripture. And, and um, so, if somebody wants to say the kingdom is now, okay, I'm all right with that. Uh, let's, let, let, let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, what's the next prayer? Holy is your name. And what's after that? Your kingdom come. Why did Jesus say to pray that if the kingdom's now? I don't know, maybe, a, maybe an amillennial says your kingdom is here. Well, that's not what he said. He said, pray your kingdom come. So I'd rather pray for the kingdom to come and find out it was here and be really disappointed than the other way around. Uh, I guess that's just me, practical theology, I guess. So sorry we ran out of time for questions. We can take more next time if you want. Thank you for your questions. I appreciate that. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time. We come now in just a few minutes to worship you Uh, in even more formal ways. May our songs that we sing be pleasing to you. And may we, Lord, come to you with joyful, trembling, humble, ecstatic hearts to hear the truth of the word of God, to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even better, and to fellowship with this beautiful, beautiful body, the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for these who are here, and we pray for your blessing on our time together this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen.